Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Today is Friday, May 29th, 2009, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Our guest today is Dr. Rosemarie Fernandez. She's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Wayne State University in Michigan. And today the topic will be family presence during CPR. And we did a podcast on this topic about four years ago with Kathy Gazetta focusing in on this topic. And um, it was interesting for me at that time learning about it. But one of the areas that really was missing, and that's why I thought this uh, particular manuscript was so podworthy, was an attempt to really determine if the presence of family during CPR, does it change the performance of the healthcare providers? The uh, particular article that we're going to be discussing today is entitled, The Presence of a Family Witness Impacts Physician Performance During Simulated Medical Codes, and that is published in uh, June 2009, Critical Care Medicine, uh, pages 1956 to 1960. And uh, in terms of our first talking point, I thought I'd give you an opportunity to speak a little bit more about the background of this particular uh, study and how you decided to organize it the way you did. Okay, well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about our work. Uh, This paper came out of several studies that were done at Wayne State looking at uh, having family witnesses. And the first was done actually pre-hospital and was recently published as well, looking at how families uh, deal with bereavement and how families may or may not have some uh, post-traumatic stress after witnessing these events. All of those look at things from the aspect of the family, but we really didn't have a way to effectively study how uh, the actual patient care might be affected. And one of the challenges in doing this in a clinical setting, as you can imagine, is the high variability of the patients that come in, the high variability of the medical team and the nursing team caring for the patient. So with the development of simulation and the advancement of the field of simulation, we were really able to control for some of those variables. Obviously, that leads to some limitations, but it also allowed us to ask some good questions about um, how care for the patient is affected by having other uh, distractors, if you will, in the room. And so just to paint the picture a little bit uh, for our listeners, uh, and again, correct me if if any of this is incorrect, but you you took an opportunity here to use your simulation center, and you were going to have a structured code, and you would have emergency medicine residents, I I believe a a two and a three, and then they would be divided up into one of three groups, either no uh, family member present, only the presence of a social worker, a quiet witness, and an overt uh, overt reaction witness, and, and then you uh, wanted to see what would happen. And, and again, before I, I let you sp- speak on this, uh, again, why this to me is so important is because it has been very, very difficult to address this. And as you point out in your article, there isn't a lot of data here. So if you'd like to take it from there, that'd be great. Sure. So, uh, yes, it, in a nutshell, that 
uh, summarizes exactly what we did. Um, we chose second and third year residents um, based on their familiarity with uh, running a basic code. The scenario that we gave them was one that is um, pretty much as basic as they come as far as a, an ACLS presentation of a patient that um, starts out when they walk in the room in pulses VTAC, progresses to V-fib, and then ultimately to asystole. And the way we set it up was very time-based. So regardless of what their actions were, that was going to be the course of the patient. So it was very standardized from case to case. And um, regarding the, simu the, excuse me, the um, standardized patients that we had play the role of the social worker and the family member, we did extensive training with them so that they um, had clear cues, they knew how to behave, so that their performance was uh, very standardized from session to session. And that was probably one of the biggest challenges that we did have with the, with the study, was standardizing their performance. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about how you decided what the content of the various scripts would be and, and what some of the challenges were? Sure. Um, well, for our social worker, when we had just a social worker present, that was really very simple in that we modeled that after what our social workers do in the codes in our emergency room, essentially walking in, introducing themselves, and then um, fading into the background until either the code is called or their services are needed. Um, for the other groups, it was a little more challenging. We wanted to have uh, a difference between their performance, yet we wanted to be sure that when it came to um, what we called the overt reaction witness, which is a term used in the literature in the past, it couldn't be somebody that was so obstructive that any reasonable physician would ask them to leave. So we were very careful about having them ask questions, perhaps raise their voice slightly, um, but not touch the patient, not get in the way of the medical team, because that would obviously cause any reasonable person to ask them to leave the room. And we didn't want that um, to be the case for, um, for any of them, but um, for at least most of the, the study groups that we used. So it had to be uh, reasonable and realistic, but not over the top, I guess. Exactly. And um, what we did is we, we scripted something. So we worked with our standardized patient program um, because they have a lot of experience in doing this. In, in scripting something very carefully, we made sure that the family member's dress was appropriate, et cetera, and we ran through it several times, and we actually recorded their performances, and then we watched them, and we pointed out which we, we felt were gold standards, if you will, and then had all of them perform to that standard. And then each session that we ran, we would watch those videos at the beginning so that we could sort of reset everybody's performance meter and be sure that they were going to perform to the same standard. If there was a case where we were concerned, um, the authors would watch the performance and be sure that it didn't need to be thrown out, that it felt within a, a range of performance behaviors which fit either quiet witness or overt reaction. Um, and then I, I guess I wanted to bring up an, a, a point here about you had a a nurse make a, a medication error, and I was just wondering uh, sort of the, the purpose of that. Was that one of the variables that you were looking at that might be affected by the presence of family? Yes. Um, our, I, our thought was 
if you if you lose your situation awareness or if situational awareness about what's going on is lost as a result of having a distractor in the room, is it possible that this becomes a patient safety concern? And so the most obvious um, thing we could think of putting in there would be a medic an obvious medication error. And we we toyed around with the idea of using a dosage error or something like that. But we really, for this, wanted to keep it very clean and straightforward. And so um, knowing that all of the residents should know this uh, protocol very clearly, we knew that they would be all ordering atropine. So um, using an, another A drug, we simply switched. The nurse would then administer adenosine every time, the first time atropine was ordered, and the teams did universally catch that error. Um, before we go into the results, were you uh, happy with the way you were able to get the scripts different between the, the quiet family member and the non-quiet family member in terms of uh, uh, getting, a, I guess, an iterative process to get these two scripts different? Were you happy with that? I was. It was far more challenging than I had expected. Having not done any scripting um, for standardized patients, my experience in simulation had been mainly with high-fidelity mannequins. I don't think I appreciated um, the level of detail that was required in the script, nor the uh, rigorousness with which you have to continuously go over um, the performance almost after each time and review it. So when we initially scheduled um, our, our, I guess, our study subjects to come in, we didn't leave enough time, so we ended up running markedly behind in our first uh, day of doing the study. And it was very clearly because we didn't realize that how important it was to go over those, the script again and again and go over the performance. And that's something that I think in the future um, I would, pay much more attention to. What, what was happening? Were they, they were going off script, or, or what were some of the challenges there? Well, you can imagine that um, it's not that it's not, not everything is clearly scripted. So you want something that's somewhat realistic, where if the physician asks the family member a question, then they should answer in a way that is as realistic as possible. And we told them, we made sure that they had clear understanding about the moderation of their tone, the types of words to use, you know, their facial expressions, things like that. And we just had to be very, very careful that they kept within the performance range of what is an overt reactor versus what is a quiet witness. And um, we had to continuously remind them of what behaviors fit in those realms because it wasn't 100% scripted since we couldn't predict what a resident might ask them. For instance, has he been sick long or um, has, has your family member um, ever said anything about how they want to be treated and if this should happen? All those sorts of things we couldn't 100% predict. But you said you um, it wasn't like a, a problem that you solved. You said it just got easier as you and the... Um, pseudo-family members sort of became more comfortable with the scenario? That and as, as we learned how to better prepare them before each session. So um, after the first day, we really retooled the way we did it, and we had them come in much earlier and really did a refreshment so that they would really know better where they were supposed to start 
their behaviors and how they were supposed to act that day because we didn't really plan on that knowledge extinguishing, and it did to some extent. Um, before I get to the, the results, the other question I had, I was just thinking now, is um, in terms of the differences in terms of the performance amongst the groups, was there concern that it just might be the uh, different quality of the residents performing and not necessarily related to the family members? Or is the point is that you really did randomize them to which group they ended up, to, so that should have fallen by the wayside? Yes, we felt that our randomization would take care of that. Certainly, it was such a small sample group. Um, any kind of a small difference could have a larger impact than one would like. So um, in a pilot study such, like, such as this, I think you always have to be careful of that. But that is why we were very careful to keep the residents separated as far as um, second and third years only, and we made sure that we didn't have any residents that were off track or had had additional training or less training or something like that. So now we can, um, for the listeners, uh, I'm just going to uh, describe table one a little bit and then let you make some comments. So the the big focus here was measuring time from physician entry into the resuscitation room to these critical events. And there were two where you found differences, and I'm just going to emphasize the One was the minutes to first defibrillation, and in the overt reaction witness group, it was approximately 2.57 minutes. And this was statistically higher than either the quiet witness group Group or the no witness group, and then the mean number of uh, or the median number of shocks delivered was uh, only four in the overt reaction group compared with the other groups. And um, I guess if you want to take a few minutes and talk about how you decided which variables to look at and uh, the results. Sure. Um, whenever I, we do a simulation study, we always want to be sure that if we're using outcomes that are scored. Uh, visually that the behaviors are very clear. And so it needs to be something that um, is easily measured. We can clearly see the start and stop. And it's not something where you're trying to interpret what somebody thought or what somebody did, because that really makes the, um, the scoring algorithm much more challenging. So when you look at the variables that we chose, we tried to choose those that were um, clearly important by ACLS and practice standards and ones that we could observe clearly on videotape. And um, we defined, for instance, um, even if you look at something like minutes to intubation, we had to be very clear about how we defined the intubation. The intubation was defined as um, passing uh, the ET tube, and then once the bag plate was placed on the ET tube, that was the time. So even within what seemed to be very clear parameters, you have to be very, very specific about how you time those. Um, we chose uh, first t- minutes to first compression, first defibrillation, and then pronouncing death and the number of shocks because they were easy to score and because there would be no question amongst raters, and we did have good inter-rater reliability when we um, did a small subsection. When we looked at the areas where we had differences, as you stated, it was minutes to first defibrillation, the overall number, and we thought about what could be causing that, and when you look at the acts that have to occur during, uh, during a code, probably one of the most visually disturbing is defibrillation. And we thought that that might have an impact on the total number that was done, especially in somebody who was having an, with a family member having an overt reaction, if they were appearing more upset. Because one of the things that happened is every time a pulse was checked and it was um, not palpated, 
and they would say, no polls, continue. The family member would go, oh, it didn't work, and get a little upset. And so we thought that that action might have precluded some of the more disturbing um, interventions during a, during a regular code. Um, we also thought that some of the teamwork activities required to do some more complex skills, like intubation or, in this case, deliver uh, shocks, would be a little challenging if there were also distractors in the room. So, for instance, coordinating, getting the equipment over there, having people move out of the way, clear, all those pieces would be a little bit more challenging with distractors present. And even in a simple code like this, I think it could have a significant impact on physician performance. Um, I thought I'd read your table three because I thought it was outstanding. And it was, you know, it, it is intuitive as a physician that there are concerns. Um, and then I'd, I'd like to ask you one other question, then we'll sort of uh, let you make some final comments. So one of the other areas that you focused in on in this manuscript were common emergent themes that were concerning from the healthcare providers. And one was that witnessing a code might be traumatic for the family member, concerns about an increased likelihood of litigation, family members might lose control and become combative, that, as you mentioned before, less effective treatment because of distraction of a family member, disruption of the code, and that family members might cause the physician to prolong the resuscitation unnecessarily. And then I thought, interestingly, you, you put what might affect your decision as a resident to have a family witness present and an absolute requirement that a trained professional be present to address the needs of that person and the emotional stability of a family member. And so the the big picture from this article is there's the first sort of signal that it may not be completely benign to have a family member present, even though there may be benefits to the family. And I, I thought I'd let you sort of take it from there to try and interpret your important study. Sure. Um, I think that most of the comments, if not all, that we got from our um, our study members were echoed in other literature. So um, people have said time and time again that physicians feel uncomfortable because they are concerned about litigation, because they are concerned that it will affect their performance. And um, unfortunately, I think that's the piece that hasn't really been well uh, addressed. And that's, one of the, that's the start of what this article was trying to do. Um, what would be interesting to know is if this article would change anyone's mind or would, in fact, make them more concerned because we did see um, differences in some key pieces of treatment. Um, our residents all practice in an environment where we do have social work available, so that may have influenced somewhat their expectation that that would be um, present. But if you look at the literature that's out there, it almost uniformly states that there has to be some support member for the family present in addition to the um, personnel working on the care of the patient anyway. So that, again, is echoed uh, throughout the literature. Um, we felt that if this was going to be done again or done in a larger way, that it would be important to have some sort of an additional education component for the residents. They did have, um, they did have a lecture uh, as part of their lecture series prior to the study. But um, it was pretty clear that there were other issues that maybe could have been addressed 
that would help them in the future if they had to deal with a situation like this. As um, many of the listeners probably know, it's very common in pediatrics to have a witness, and it's still somewhat unclear why that doesn't translate into the adult uh, practice arena. Well, that was going to be my concluding question for you. And again, this came up with Kathy Gazetta's issue a few years ago. Was there definitely was a dichotomy with the adult and peds? And as an adult intensivist, it sort of makes more sense. And there are often these discrepancies, certainly in adult critical care versus pediatric critical care, where because the the fundamental relationship between the healthcare provider in a pediatric setting is often the combination of the adult and the child. And it's it's different for adults. And uh, I think that the psychodynamics are different. And was that something that you were trying to address in this study? And that was what I was trying to figure out. Was this supposed to be an adult scenario, I guess? Yes, uh, we really tried to do an, ad- an adult-focused scenario. And I think that even if you look at pediatrics, um, there was a recent paper that came out looking at the effect of uh, family members on uh, trauma code uh, performances. But even if, if you looked at the... Um, the illness and uh, the ISS of those patients, it was nothing near what um, the average adult trauma would see if you looked at 30 adult trauma patients. So I think, you know, part of it is we have to look at how ill some of those patients are. And then, as you said, in a critical care setting, what's the relationship of the caretaker to uh, the patient? In an emergency room, we have no relationship with those individuals whatsoever. And so there may be a difference in how this works for a critical care setting versus an emergency room because of the relationship that you all build with your patients, whereas we don't have any relationship at all. One of the other questions is the experience of the provider. And I know that as I've been an attending now for a few more years, this is something that I would be more comfortable doing perhaps than when I was a resident. And I guess that would be a different study is looking at more senior uh, practitioners in all of this because I think that that, it, it takes a degree of maturity to be able to be doing this in a room uh, and yet coordinate and have a family be there and be present. Do you have thoughts on that? Yes, I, I think that that's um, very likely true. I think that um, the challenge there will be changing some um, basic norms and beliefs in somebody who's more experienced. So you have, you know, there's a pro and a con, whereas residents are a little bit more malleable, but let, yet don't maybe have the physician maturity to um, to really be effective, yet we have some more mature physicians who perhaps are a little more set in their ways and really would be a little resistant to change. So I think in that case, the education component becomes really important. So with, with data like this, do you believe that this, for example, does this change practice at your institution yet or, or your family presence during CPR policies? Do you have thoughts on any of that? It hasn't changed policy where we are right now. However, this combined with some other work that's being done is really making us rethink um, the role of having family members in, uh, in resuscitation because, as I said, this other big study that just came out demonstrated an increase in uh, post-traumatic stress in patients in the field, and we are repeating that now for in-hospital patients. And so that will really give us a lot of information about the long-term effect that we might be seeing in, in family members. So that study showed that the families who witnessed it had more PTSD afterwards? Is that what Correct. you're saying? 
And so just to summarize it up, I, I think that this is important where you take an important to, to many physicians, as you said, more senior physicians, a very counterintuitive concept of, of having families present during this what can be in a, just an awful situation and where there is some glimmer that's saying no, that it's good, it provides closure and, and convincing arguments. And now the pendulum swinging, I guess, a little bit more towards the other way that for at least the article you mentioned and your article, A, there may be effects on performance and we don't want to jeopardize patient safety and two, uh, maybe psychological downsides to the family members who do witness this. Does that sound right? Yes. Well, um, this really has been a terrific opportunity. I, I'm looking forward to doing future podcasts, hopefully, on your, your other projects. We've been speaking today with Dr. Rosemary Fernandez. She's a, an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Wayne State University. And today we've been going over her important project where there was a focus on using simulation to help determine the effect of family presence during CPR. Thank you so much, Dr. Fernandez, for joining us today. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. For more information, please see our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Help advance your hospital's rapid response program by attending SCCM's Rapid Response System Training to be held July 13, 2009 in San Francisco, California, USA, during SCCM's Critical Care Academy. This concentrated one-day course will include a brief overview of the rationale, evidence, and structure of rapid response systems, the anatomy of a rapid response team call, and tips for effective communications and crisis management. Participants will break into small work groups to circulate through interactive modules that troubleshoot calls on airway, breathing, circulation, neurology, and implementation barriers and solutions. Register early as space is limited for this course. Visit www.sccm.org for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MD, FCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.